And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, listeners. This is Lalitha here. And what a morning! 24 hours of complete confusion, complete and utter confusion. The neoliberal agenda is failing in Europe. And the right is taking off. Everybody's confused. Nobody knows what's happening. I'm talking about Brexit, of course. If you're hiding under the duna, if you haven't heard it, I'm sure everybody has. Seems to be all over the news. So it's going to be interesting um, the next little while how it all it's going to pan out. So we just have to wait and see. And all the economic pundits have no answers. They predicted these things, but the impact of it is so confusing to the majority of them. So let's do the things that we normally do on Solidarity Breakfast while they're sorting the fallout from those votes. Now we have um, friends of public housing members on um, sorry I'm panting because I run to open the door <laughs> so apologies for that. Um, we've got Fiona Ross and Jeremy Dixon on the phone and we're going to talk about more day-to-day practical issues that are not talked about in any of the election campaigns. So let's have a chat to Fiona and Jeremy. Good morning. Hi, Lolita. How are you? Hi, Fiona. Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. And good morning, yeah. Jeremy. Yeah, good morning, Lolita. Great. Now, this is <laughs> yeah, one I'm a bit sleepy, you know. Sorry, you're what? Sleepy. Yes, I can understand. <laughs> I, I can't afford to be sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a, a very important issue that no political party is actually talking about. Um, and that is of great concern to all of us. And I thought it would be a good opportunity for you guys to let us know about the current situation in housing. And everybody knows about um, the Bedigo Street occupation by homeless people, which is absolutely fantastic, and that's been yeah. ongoing, and we keep talking about um, that issue every week. We announce it so that people can actually go there and express a solidarity with those people. But they're more fundamental issues. And um, just wanted to start off with the basic, um, you know, things that are happening, which is housing uh, as an issue has not been addressed in the election. What are your feelings about that? Yes, well, that, that's certainly the case. Um, it's very disappointing that housing and homelessness have, have not even been properly discussed. And um, our position, of course, is that the, uh, we need to retain public housing. That's the only long-term solution to the housing crisis and to homelessness. And there's a real wall of silence. There's a real um, mm-hmm. conspiracy of silence, if you like, 
around the stock transfers. So, Which is that uh, stock being taken away from public housing uh, and given to the um, private um, semi-charity, semi-business bodies uh, that call themselves community housing. Yes. Uh, which, but which are a, a, private, a sort of labour third way, uh, I believe, is its origins um, of uh, privatised public housing. So, so what's happening is these, um, these organisations, which are based on charities ultimately, uh, are being given uh, public housing stock first to manage and then to own. And that's essentially their business model to cannibalise uh, public housing. And, and, and the word to look for is always social housing. When a, when a politician tells you uh, they're committed to social housing, they want you to think they're committed to public housing. What they mean is they're committed to community housing, to taking, uh, to, to building up these privatised bodies. So it's it, it's an uh, as I was, it's another privatisation disaster. Uh, it, it, it's not being uh, publicly talked about by anybody. It, it's going except people such as us here. It's going on completely uh, under the radar, and so. so we need, first of all, to have a discussion about it because uh, that, that's the first thing. A really important point, by the way, is that the community housing is massively subsidised by Commonwealth rent assistance, which is little known. People talk about um, um, community housing being more efficient, using less public money. What they don't talk about is, is that they get Commonwealth rent assistance. Which Whereas is, public housing doesn't need it whatsoever. Yep, yep, yep. The thing is, the thing is, sorry if I can just um, rave on just a, a second or two more, is the public housing we have uh, w w was built uh, in largely in, in, in the 60s and 70s by, by mostly Liberal government. Um, and we could afford to build it then. Uh, we can afford to build it now. It is the, the quite simple, uh, direct solution to the housing shortage is to, is to build more public housing. We have to bite the bullet as a policy thing and just do it uh, very much in support of, of, of the occupation and the squatters too, of course. Mm. So one of the key things that people um, are confused about, as you were pointing out, is the term social housing. In fact, social housing has two arms. One is the public housing, which is the true original public housing, where people actually pay around 20, 20, 25% or 30% rent. And then you have the stock that's being sold off. This is the other point. It's not actually being sold off. It's being given to um, right. church organizations and other uh, entrepreneurs who actually go under the radar because from what I understand to, to be eligible as a charitable organization like the Salvation Army or St. Vincent de Paul or whatever, you have to um, collect 75% of the market rent. So the big corporations are getting in um, instead of charging 80% of the market rent, which is what the, the social housing formula seems to um, demand, what we have is the large corporations coming in under the radar and charging the 75% market um, rent value and declaring themselves a charity organization, therefore exactly. not exactly. paying any tax. That is just totally criminal from what I understand. Is that, is that correct? So it's not just the church groups and the charities. You're quite right. It's also corporations that can um, claim charitable status by charging 75% of the market rent. So they're minting it, aren't they? Rent assistance. 
as and well. So that 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 means those corporations and the non-government sector yeah, are collecting. Collecting, sorry, uh, sorry the co- collecting the Commonwealth uh, rent subsidies that's given by the uh, Centrelink, so to speak, yeah? Yes, yeah. Commonwealth rent assistance um, is being used as an operating subsidy by community housing organisations. And they're very clear about that, that they rely on maximum Commonwealth rent assistance coming in in order to provide even a percentage of their housing to so, people on, on low income. So as I and see it, sorry. That's under threat. The whole thing is kind of very precarious as well because it relies on, on, um, on Centrelink payments. Mm. So as I see it, the Centrelink but, rent subsidy, which is taxpayer money, is being transferred, 100% transferred to NGOs and private um, corporations. Yeah, of course, uh, the Commonwealth rent assistance applies to people in private, completely private rental too. I mean, it's not just something which is paid to people in community housing. Um, but e- even from the, if you like, from the standard of, uh, the standpoint of capitalist economics, uh, the Commonwealth rent assistance is, is fundamentally bad policy in that, um, it's essentially a subsidy to landlords. It bids up rents. Yep. Uh, so, so even from your, you know, so your, your, your Milton Friedman point of view, if you like, <laughs> yes. it, it's fundamentally really bad policy. Not calling for uh, it to be stripped away from people, of course, right at the moment, because it depend, people depend on it to actually pay their rent. Uh, but it, it's not the direction to go to a, a long-term um, solution to housing. Um, the fact is the capitalist market does not supply people's housing needs in a modern complex society. Um, public housing uh, needs to be accepted as um, a necessary part of the mix uh, that, that to make sure that everybody is housed. You actually need an expansion of public housing and all this... Um, messing about, if you like, with, 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 with community housing and so forth um, is, in my view, largely an attempt to uh, simply face that, to evade that reality, which really runs across the, uh, against the, the whole uh, neoliberal uh, mindset that the market can solve everything. Well, the fact is it can't. And uh, I think people might be waking up to that now and we might be... Uh, able to uh, talk about sensible solutions. And the fact is we simply need more public housing. Simply, uh, public housing is part of how you provide housing in any big complex society such as our own. The market won't uh, solve it on its own. And just another point, Lali, about the Commonwealth um, rent assistance is that people need to be clear that public housing doesn't require it. It's a different model altogether. So... Um, you know, different groups are always very quick to label public housing, subsidised housing, taxpayer-funded housing. Well, it's when they, they, what they don't realise is just how much community housing is costing the taxpayer in the form of ongoing, um, endless um, streams of Commonwealth rent assistance, which goes directly to the landlords. Hmm. Um, the, there are a couple of the other issues I want to take up with you. One is the uh, a, a new policy, or, or I suppose that you can call it policy, the Greens released about the renters' market or renters per se, 
And the other issue I want to take up with you is the quality of, of the renters' market um, as such. Because um, one of the things that always struck me is the regulation of properties that are being rented, whether it's public or private. Um, I walked into a house one day and they had just a baby and being a you know, maternal child health nurse, I do home visits, of course, and there was this big crack. It's about an inch wide and it exposed the house to the cold. And mm-hmm. I asked them, how come you rented a place like this? He said, well, they, they refused to fix it. They said it, that's how it was when you rented it and we are not obliged to fix it. And they had the heater running 24 hours a day to try and keep the house warm. And it was appalling that you know, they were unable to actually address such a fundamental issue with a new, well, with a new baby or not. The fact is it was actually like living in a tent outside in, in the freezing cold. And this, this quality of, of properties that are being rented out, um, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And I, I know another teenage fellow who was living in a house that was supposedly a house who is um, the size of a container. And the, the rent he was paying was like 260 per week. And, and obviously that, that, is, is, that is a huge problem in terms of quality and um, in yes. terms of um, the amount of rent they pay. But it's such a dwindling resource, isn't it, housing? Yeah. It's such a scarce resource that, you know, people can profiteer from it. You can, it opens the door to all sorts of shonky practices. Look, look the landlord, I mean, uh, Parliament has always more represented the class of people who are likely to be landlords than the likely to be tenants, right? So the, uh, the landlord and tenancy uh, law has always been uh, and heavily skewed uh, toward uh, landlords. And one of the big challenges... Um, ahead of us is to is to unite um, go, go beyond public housing and to unite with people in, in private rental uh, and and um, and so forth. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not I obviously you know can't know for sure, but the, to the best of my knowledge, uh, a house in the condition you describe with big cracks in the wall so that it's too cold to heat isn't actually legal to rent. Uh, but um, the, the, the law is, is, is administered uh, with a view to the, uh, to the landlord's uh, worldview rather than to the tenant's worldview. Uh, that's on it. Look, it does touch on an important thing. One of the, one of the big propaganda um, techniques used by people trying to destroy public housing um, is uh, is the idea that public housing is um, very very badly maintained, uh, and that's been what has been used is that public housing's legitimate grievances about this or that maintenance issues are now being seized on and uh, and twisted in a in a yeah. in a dishonest way. Uh, by community housing uh, to give the idea that uh, public housing in general is some kind of bizarre Dickensian slum. Uh, actually, it, it's not true. Uh, no. Public housing uh, maintenance, maintenance issues come up from time to time, obviously, uh, but for low-cost housing, uh, the, the, the maintenance in public housing is uh, certainly better than the maintenance in, lo- in private housing of, of the, the same sort of cost. And though it's hard to get information about community housing because they're private and so um, 
figures on them are very difficult to get, but so far as I can ask, we can ascertain anecdotally that their maintenance is, is no better at, at at best is no better than the maintenance in public housing. So there's a whole uh, propaganda push around the destruction of public housing. Yes, there is a lot of propaganda, isn't there? There is. There and is. there's also a lot of propaganda against our communities, which is very false. And the, the whole idea is to beat up on public housing mm. so okay. that when these transfers take place, the public won't won't be sympathetic to our cause. Mm. We seem obsessed about the transfers, Lolita, is because it's something which is happening now. Uh, you know, and, and it's something which is on the agenda of all political parties to, to hand over uh, first the management and then the title to public housing to across these communities. Across all states. Yeah, yeah, across all states, yeah. It's a federally directed thing ultimately, um, but, but applied uh, differently at different paces in different states. And it's something which is, is ongoing. I mean, and it's an... I mean... I don't know, was privatisation of water and gas a big success? Uh, did it deliver the benefits it was supposed to do? Uh, well, this is yes. the privatisation which is ongoing at the moment. And I think we need to... Um, it's being done in secrecy. It's really hard to get airspace about the issue. Mm. And it needs people, need uh, first of all, to talk about it. Uh, I was just saying before... Um, before this interview came on, I was just saying what would be a big relief would be to um, if people talked about the stock transfers, even to support them, uh, because then at least it would be in the public and, and we could talk about it. But it's like a Victorian, you know, it's like, you know, sex in the traditional uh, Victorian family. Mm. It, it's happening, but you don't talk about it. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, 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 Good analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I just stop you there for a minute? I thought we'll, we'll just for, go for a quick break and we'll get back mm -hmm. into the discussion. There are a few other things that we need to tease out in this issue. Just um, hang on for me for a minute, please. Want to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, check or FPOS. Or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. And if you haven't already guessed, we are... This is Tricia, and uh, even though the Radiothon, the one week that we focus on is over, we are collecting money from anyone and everyone who would like to support us. And we run on voluntary labor. <laughs> we don't get paid. Um, and, of course, to be independent, we can't expect money from big corporations, and we don't want to. We'd like to stay independent and be a, a station that uh, rely, relies on the community, for the community, and, and we prefer to be run by the community. Now, we are in conversation with uh, Jeremy Dixon, 
and Fiona Ross from the Friends of Public Housing, which is a major issue. As we know, there is enormous crisis in housing. As we see people sleeping on the streets, it's become more visible in the fourth richest country in the world. We have people sleeping on the streets, and we have people uh, couch surfing the number of thousands of them are not actually being counted. We don't know the actual number of those people. And we also have crowding in in houses where people can't afford to pay the rent because it is so high. So here we have poverty and and you've got unemployment rising, which then drive people into into, um, rented property, in crowded rented property. So there's a whole whole, um, number of things that are intersecting and it's having a, a terrible impact on people, um, mm. those who cannot, to, cannot afford to pay their rents, like two-bedroom two houses are three four $400 a week, and um, I don't think we get that much Centrelink money, do we, guys? Mm. No? And that's... Um, <laughs> I didn't think if, so. If we privatise public housing, it will make the situation so much worse. Yes. And that's, uh, this is such a class issue, mm, because... By handing over public housing titles, it's irreversible, and also community housing um, are quite clear that they cater to the supposedly low to middle income bracket. Mm. So the people at the very uh, bottom of the scale, um, they they overlooked if if they're on let's say New Start or Youth mm. Allowance, yeah. and there's no compulsion for them to take. Um, the people with the high and complex needs either. Yes. So what we're seeing already, even before these mass transfers go through, is that the most vulnerable and the people who are on the lowest incomes are falling through the cracks and they're becoming homeless, couch surfing, um, you know, the, the dream of having the dignity of your own little public housing flat in a community that is cohesive and cares about you, that's disappearing so quickly now. Mm. And I think this is, this is the point that once we hand over the titles to community housing, there's no more safety net for the people that community housing are not, will not be housing because they simply are not viable in the market. Hmm. This is the, a point which is often missed, actually, that uh, community housing has its own agenda that the people, groups like Housing Choices uh, and Yarra Housing and so on, um, while government ha- has, a, has a plan for them, so to speak, um, in, in replacing public housing, they're, they're, they're private organisations with their own agenda and their own agenda is uh, to house... Um, People of, of middle incomes, the, 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 their plan is not so much to replace uh, public housing as to pl- replace home ownership um, so that people who would once have, have expected to own their own homes, uh, pe- pe- people who earn working class wages, uh, the big master plan here is that these people will spend their lives uh, paying rent uh, and by, by by businesses which give themselves the airs of charity, uh, so the I think it's a really important point, and I think it would be the breakthrough point if it could be more widely understood uh, that public housing, uh, increasing public housing and home ownership, 
um, the, you know, the great Aussie dream of home ownership, as they say, are not counterposed. Um, they're very much um, in harmony um, in the sense that having low rent, having uh, reasonably rented rents available is one of the things which makes it possible for people, if that's how they choose, to buy houses. But the community housing here isn't just um, existing at the expense of public housing. It is part of the, the master plan, uh, which uh, masters are dreaming for us, um, to replace, for working people, to replace home ownership uh, with uh, with renting forever for, for, for these quasi to these quasi charities, and in their own councils, they're quite open about that. They're quite open about that's what they want. They want comparatively low income working people who can pay market rent, um, and they're there to replace um, home ownership. Look, I used to work at Bryanton May before it closed down the match factory, uh, which had some of the uh, the wages paid what uh, were factory wages um, r right on the award. Some of the lowest uh, paid uh, people in the country who were working uh, full time, and they all owned their own houses. Hmm. Uh, because and we could do that back in the 60s and 70s, and by God, we can do it now. We haven't technologically gone backwards. Uh, we've gone forwards. We haven't gone backwards in real wealth available to the society. We've massively gone forward. And mm. if we could afford public housing and home ownership, massive expansions of public housing, which occurred in the 60s, and um, home ownership, a widespread home ownership, we can afford it now. It's just rubbish. Mm. And, and even, um, even the, the organisations that are well-intentioned and want to... Um, mm take on the people who are vulnerable. Because it's a, a business model, there will always be the, that tension within mm. and they will not be able to house the people um, uh, it, at the scale that public housing oh, look, can, can achieve that. It's not so, about demonising anybody, you know. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it's not... not, not, not a, it, it, uh, it's not about saying that the people who run community housing or work for community housing and so on are bad people. Often, you know, they're not, obviously. Uh, it's about social policy here and, you know... Uh, and transparency and openness so that we all know what's going on. Now, the, the $65 million dollar question, guys. Why, in the last few minutes, sorry to interrupt you there, but just, sure. just a, a question I wanted to pose to you in the last few minutes we have in the interview. Why do you think the political parties, the major political parties, the three I'm speaking of, have not really taken up this issue? Well, I think, as you've said before, this is part of a global neoliberalism that's sweeping, sweeping across the world. And I honestly don't think there's any real left-wing mainstream party. To, everything's moving to the right, and, um, and they're all involved in it. One of the interesting things is that, um, you know, there, a lot of organisations have been co-opted into this so-called brave new way of social housing and public housing supposed to be old hat. And, um, and meanwhile, the public tenants and the general public itself hasn't got a clue what's going on. Mm. So I think it's a mistake to think that uh, the, the people who run the major political parties and so on are, uh, 
uh, are necessarily all that intelligent or, or necessarily <laughs> have that mind to... Uh, did you see... Uh, did you see Self-serving Bill... comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> did you see Bill Shorten on Q&A the other day when he was... Uh, when he was challenged directly on housing affordability, and he didn't really have anything. I mean, no. it's a major issue which massively involves a huge uh, percentage of, of potential voter base, and they're really only just starting to think about it. They've just decided what um, to, to, uh, to wind back negative gearing. Uh, which, which people interested in housing on a reality basis have been hopping on about uh, for years. Um, the, the ALP has still um, ju- has just got the memo, uh, so to speak, which is good. It's good that they've got the memo at last, but uh, they've just got it. And they, they still don't know whether they're trying to uh, push housing prices down uh, or up. Uh, and when uh, he, Shorten got a perfectly rational question about uh, housing affordability, he didn't really have an answer. He could duck and weave a bit and say that they're against negative gearing, which will slow housing growth. You know, mm. When he had a question about people not being able to afford houses now. Yeah. Uh, but they're just really starting to think about it. Mm. Okay, time's up, guys. I, I'm just going to stop you there. Sorry. Um, we, we're noticing that the Q&A is, is bringing some embarrassing moments to our, our politicians, and <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. But, look, thank you so much for being available so early in the morning to talk about such mm-hmm. an important issue. It is a fundamental, basic human need, and it's actually a human right to have shelter. And I, I cannot believe we live in a country that it's so rich and yet so poor. Um, as I said, thank you so much. And we'll talk again in, in future and see how all this sort of pans out after the elections and depending on who wins and all that. So thanks, You're Fiona. Right. Thanks, thanks, Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Let's uh, uh, move on to the next item. Uh, but before I do that, let's look at... Um, Fundraising for 3CR. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419-8377. And you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. I'm Lalita, your host, till 9 o'clock. And I've got a bit of sad news for people. Um, I don't know if some of you may remember Lynn Beaton, who used to co-host this uh, program last year for a few months with me. She unfortunately passed away last um, very early Sunday morning, the, the night after she celebrated her 70th birthday. And my deepest condolences go out to her two daughters and her grandchild and a son-in-law. Um, it's been, or ex-son-in-law rather. It's been a, quite a shock because she was writing a book on the history of the Ballarat Trades Hall and um, that is, is, is a vital project. It was, well, it still is, I guess, a vital project. It is uh, being used, the project she started, um, and it's halfway written, I think, is being used to try and 
apply for UN heritage um, status for the Ballarat Trades Hall. So that's um, something that we'll talk about later. I will interview someone who was involved in the project with her um, in a couple of weeks uh, once I organize um, a bit of obituary, I guess, for Lynn Beaton, who was a very intelligent, uh, very political, uh, very committed working-class person, always um, was um, never off the mark in terms of the working class. And she wrote a book on the um, miners' struggle in Britain during the Thatcher days. She spent two days in England. And we, I think we got the book somewhere. Um, if uh, anyone's interested, you're, you're welcome to ring. But in two weeks' time, I'll do a, a short um, presentation on Lynn Beaton and interview the people, some people who were involved in her life and um, pay some tributes to her. She was a great uh, cohort, but she was too busy writing the history. Hello, Paul. Hi there, yeah. Hi. Um, to, for, for listeners' information, I've got Paul Duffel on the phone, and he is from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. <laughs> yes. Excuse me. Yes, thank you very much for having us on the show this morning. Yes, Lisa. welcome, yes. And, and it's our pleasure. So, uh, Palestine has been off the agenda for a while. I just thought we should catch up on that particular issue. Um, I wonder if you could give us some updates of what's happening, and also maybe you can talk about how you're intervening in these elections as well. So, shall we start with an update, what's happening? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so in an election where really a lot of foreign affairs issues have really featured featured pretty lightly in the election. You know, there hasn't been too much discussion. Um, there's still been a lot happening around Palestine and a lot happening around our campaign. So um, so for the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, we've been running a campaign called I Vote Palestine, and people can go to ivotepalestine.org.au, and we're making it really easy for people to get in touch with their candidates to let them know that Palestine matters and that they vote. And for our campaign there, we... Um, well, the, the basic thing we're asking people to do is to send an email to all their candidates, and so we've made it really easy. People just go to ivotepalestine.org.au, and you'll see there's a pledge that we're asking candidates to sign, and so people can just, with one click of a button, just send that pledge to all of their candidates. And so it's really easy, um, and we've had some amazing successes so far during the campaign. It's been really, really wonderful, Lalitha, like... Candidates and over 90% of electorates across the country, this is countrywide, have received emails from Palestine supporters letting the candidates know that, that Palestine matters. And we've had well over 100 candidates have responded to the pledge, and then we've had 56 candidates have signed up to the pledge. So it's been really wonderful, the, the response that we've been having from the community and also from the candidates as well. When candidates are, you know, are, are finding out that their constituents care about Palestine, they've been responding. So that's been wonderful to see. Mm. So why do you feel that um, Palestine is important in these elections, Paul? Maybe you can give us a bit of an insight into that. Well, Palestine is very much an Australian issue. You know, just, just, just one statistic for people to remember. Over the last 10 years, the Australian government has spent more than $2 billion. That's right. You, you heard me right, billion with a B. $2 billion <laughs> of Australian taxpayers' money has been spent funding Israeli arms companies on contracts with Israeli arms companies. These are exactly the same Israeli arms companies that are heavily involved in the abuse of the human rights of women, men and children of Palestine. So just one example is Albert Systems. That's an Israeli arms company. And you may have seen there was some media earlier on in the year where a lobbyist hired by Albert Systems called Mary Easton, she was very heavily involved in the recent New South Wales state Labor 
con- um, convention where she was working very hard to try and block criticism of Israel's illegal settlements and Israel's human rights abuses. So Mary Essen, she works for a lobbyist of this arms company called Albert Systems, and over the last 10 years, Albert Systems has received over $1.5 billion of Australian taxpayers' money. Albert Systems is heavily involved in abuses of Palestinian human rights and unfortunately also violence against Palestinian civilians. Um, Albert Systems drones were used heavily in Israel's 2014 assault on Gaza, which of course killed well over 400 children. Uh, Albert Systems also provides electronic spying equipment to the illegal wall that Israel's built throughout the West Bank. So uh, unfortunately, because of all this, of our taxpayers' money flowing to these arms companies, Palestine is very much an Australian issue. And you also will have seen the big support for, Palestine, for, for Israel that has been coming from the current government as well. You had um, Attorney General George Brandis claiming that Palestine wasn't even the occupied. And then, of course, you had the Foreign Minister Julie Bishop only a few months after she'd become Foreign Minister claiming that the settlements weren't illegal. So, um, unfortunately, Australia is heavily involved. Palestine's very much a Australian issue, and that's why we're encouraging people to get in contact with their candidates, let their candidates know that basic human rights of Palestine matters, let their candidates know that Australia shouldn't be wasting taxpayers' money funding these arms companies with these terrible human rights records and letting their candidates know that they vote. So, again, so all people need to do is go to, the, go to our website, so ivotepalestine.org.au, plug in their details, and then they can send an email to all the candidates. So, um, yes, yeah, so we feel that Palestine is very much an Australian issue, and as I've just mentioned, you know, because of the unfortunate financial political support that our government's providing um, to Israeli, Israeli organisations actively involved in human rights abuses, Palestine is very much an Australian issue. Mm. That was uh, quite a summary there. Um, now, the other, the other thing I've always wanted to ask someone like you is, you know, how does the, the ongoing dispute since 1948, since the time decolonization, you know, was at Stayland in those times, um, there has been a problem with this Muslim-Christian dispute, and, and the Middle Eastern um, region has been bubbling away with this almost like the aftermath of crusade after a couple of centuries has been an ongoing issue. Do you think the issue around the Palestine-Israel dispute has influenced this whole Middle Eastern stuff other than the oil um, stuff, of course? But what do you think, politically, how much, in, how much influence do you think this dispute um, imposes on the problems in the Middle East? Well, you know, I mean, it's a very complex question, of course. So when we're talking about the Middle East, we're talking about a very diverse you know, linguistically, religiously, ethnically, culturally region. So it's a very sort of complex question to talk about how, you know, one particular conflict when, in terms of Israel-Palestine influences the whole region. Um, what we can tell, though, is it seems that a lot of violent groups who will often be involved in violence against Western countries, they'll often use Israel-Palestine as an excuse or as a reason, you know, um, to sort of motivate and to sort of as, a, as ideological fuel, if you like, to, um, to support their violence against Western countries. And that's another reason why Israel-Palestine is a really critical Western issue. Of course, we know that looking at the research, and you know, part of my background as an academic is looking at what are the necessary conditions for effective negotiation and dialogue. And when we look at Israel-Palestine, for example, we see that those important conditions are really, really, are really, really absent. So, you know, looking over 60 years of research, 
across a whole range of different disciplines and, and academia and research and expert practitioner insight, we see that one condition for effective peace negotiation stands out really clearly, and that's equal power. And right now, equal power is really not present in the Israel-Palestine situation. And unfortunately, Australia's actions are actually exacerbating that unequal power Mm, by the Australian government providing, as I said, $2 billion over the last 10 years to Israeli arms companies, providing massive political support to Israel and its policies. It's actually exacerbating this unequal power, and it's actually pushing Israelis and Palestinians further and further away from a negotiated peace settlement. So if there could be some improvement in the negotiated peace settlement and dialogue in Israel-Palestine, I'm, I'm sure it would have really important reverberations throughout the region in terms of in terms of peace and security, not just for us Palestinians, but of course peace and security for Israelis as well. And so that's one of the things that our pledge is calling for, Lalitha, is like support for non-violent activities that help to provide support for a just and peaceful resolution. So we're calling for support for non violent activities. And because we know when nonviolent activities are effective, when they're supported, it helps to defuse the ideological fuel that drives violence, that drives terrorism as well. So by supporting Palestinian nonviolence, we're actually also enhancing not just Palestinian but Israeli security. Hmm. So that's a really important focus for us. And 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 that's really a lot of that comes down to the the importance of basic human rights as well of course so and we know that, that not, showing that violence is not is not the only solution and it's that's right. not even the, the most effective or ethical solution of course that non-violence human rights advocacy is effective and it works and demonstrating that and having australian government support for that would be a big contribution to ending our australian government's support for Israeli violence and for really increasing the insecurity. Mm. And of course the BDS campaign is part of that non-violent fight back, isn't it? And from what I understand, um, Israel has been losing to the tune of $4 billion a year on this campaign, even though it has not been as publicly promoted in Australia as as elsewhere, like Europe, it's, it's been very big. Um, you know, it has been a very big campaign. And I think you're right. If, if um, there is a a way of peacefully fighting back, then that keeps the the support solid. When there's violence involved, it it, it polarizes people. You know, you you can't use violence to fight violence. Um, um, scenario comes in as well. So I think that that's a very valid argument. And um, the other the, the BDS campaign, how is it going in Australia? I haven't heard much about the the results of the campaign here. Well, the thing about any boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign, you know, the essence of any boycott is about withdrawing support. So, you know, so the first question we need to ask when we're implementing, when we're looking at a boycott campaign when, and when we're analysing a boycott campaign in, say, for example, Australia, is what support is Australia providing for violence in Israel and Palestine? Mm. And what we can tell, for as, far, as far as we can tell from the information available, the Australian government doesn't provide any, any support for Palestinian violence. However, when we look at Israeli violent groups, for example, I just mentioned Albert Systems, for example, yep. we know that there's massive Australian taxpayer-funded money going in contracts to support these Israeli um, arms companies and the Israeli government. Of course, the Israeli government actively involved in a range of human rights abuses against the Palestinians. So, so the first thing we need to look at, okay, so then, so boycotts are about withdrawing that support. We've, so we're thinking, how do we withdraw that support, you know? And this is really where it comes comes back to our campaign here, yep. the I Vote Palestine 
vote.org.au campaign is we're asking our candidates to unequivocally support the basic human rights of Palestinians and Israelis and to support peace and to recognise Palestine and to really withdraw that political support that the Australian government has been providing for the Israeli government and for the Israeli government's policies. So, you know, boycott, divestment, sanctions is an important mm-hmm. campaign because not because Australia isn't involved and because we need to become more involved, but because Australia is already involved and it has a historical involvement in Israel-Palestine as well. I mean, you'll recall, of course, you know, like we were talking about the, um, you know, the, the violence going back to 1948, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, perhaps even earlier than that, you know, the UN partition plan of 1947, the first country to, to vote in favour of that was, of course, Australia. So Australia has been heavily involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict ever, even before the creation of the modern state of Israel. Hmm. So it's very much an Australian issue. So that's why I would encourage people to go to ivotepalestine.org.au and send this pledge to all their candidates, asking their candidates to support basic human rights and international law um, regarding Israel-Palestine and to support non-violent activities. And I have to say, um, as uh, most of the listeners of my the program that I, I do here know that I'm a candidate, and I've been answering a lot of emails about Palestine. I can tell you that. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> yeah. So it's been I've been very very busy on on the on the computer. Now, <clears throat> the the other issue is you know uh, that I guess exasperates me to put it succinctly is that the fact that Australia seems to tail end the U.S. on this foreign policy. Um, area and Palestine is like a stands out like a sort of never mind anybody else but this has been in a long term massacre a genocide really of the Palestinian people um, is there anything you want to say I mean we've got another couple of minutes uh, about this this tendency to always tail end the US and not standing up for Australia as it, it is um, while not going stretching it as far as huge nationalistic question but the fact that our Politicians don't seem to have the gumption to get up and say, no, we're not funding violence, um, has always amazed me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, my beliefs and, you know, and the, 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 the practices of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, you know, is we're big believers in evidence-based policy. So if you're going to build a policy in relation to a complex violent conflict, you need to do your homework, you need to look at the evidence. What does the evidence tell us about what will be an effective policy? And so I just mentioned, you know, before the importance of the balance of power in terms of effective peace negotiations in Israel and Palestine. So that's one obvious, you know, important part of evidence-based policy that we need to look at how do we reduce this massive power disparity between Israelis and Palestinians and, of course, ending Israel's illegal occupation of, of Palestinian territory is, of course, one, one beginning in that. Another aspect of evidence-based policy, which I think is absolutely critical to your, you know, to your question about Australia's own security in the degree that it's tied to the U.S. is that when we look at research, and there's a wonderful researcher who came out of um, Chicago, a guy by the name of Robert Pape, and he's an expert in terrorism. And he looks at the causes of terrorism, and he's written a couple of wonderful books looking at the drivers and causes of suicide terrorism, you know, the most egregious form of terrorism. And what he finds is that the one common factor that drives suicide terrorism is when the terrorists feel that their own country is occupied by a foreign power, particularly when that foreign power is a democracy, and particularly when there's a religious difference with that foreign power. Mm. 
So he finds the critical factor in driving suicide terrorism, it's not ideology, it's not religion, it's not class or it's not ethnicity or it's not the economic status of the suicide terrorist, it's foreign occupation. Yeah. So if we're serious about preventing terrorism against countries like Australia and our allies, we need to, you know, we need to do our homework, we need to face up to the facts about what actually drives that terrorism, even if it's going to challenge our own pre-existing views. Good point. So the reality is, is that occupation drives suicide terrorism. It's the most significant driver of suicide terrorism. And that's across, you know, all cases of suicide terrorism. Whether we're looking at, for example, what's been happening in Sri Lanka or Israel-Palestine or, you know, other countries. Well, colonization. Colonization is a big factor in this. And that's the thing, isn't it? So, you know, so in terms of enhancing, even if we're just talking about enhancing Australia's own security, Hmm. then ending occupation is absolutely critical. And then, of course, that comes back to Israel-Palestine, doesn't it? You know, because we know that since 1967, the Palestinians have been under illegal occupation by the Israelis. And so that's why it's absolutely critical that Australian politicians and candidates use their voice to call for an end to the occupation and that constituents, local constituents, you know, we're all local constituents, for our candidates, send, and they send a quick email to their, to their candidates letting them know that basic human rights in Palestine matters and that they vote and then asking their candidates to take a principled, sensible and actually safe stand. It's actually safe for Australia to take a stand. It's safer to take Australia for Australia to take a stand in support of basic human rights in Palestine. On, on so, that. so, you know, so I really <clears throat> go to this I vote Palestine.org.au. Plug in your details, send an email. It only takes about 30 seconds. We know people are very busy, you know, so we want to just make it sure. really easy. Sure. And we really want to help to close this gap between, because we know there's emerging, growing support within Australia. You know, we've seen that from opinion poll after opinion poll. There's emerging support, growing support, for, you know, amongst Australia, amongst the grassroots for basic human rights in Palestine. And so we're working to close that gap. There's, there's a democracy gap regarding Israel, Palestine and Australia. We're working to close that gap to, to let candidates know that Palestine matters for their local constituents and that candidates need to do the right thing. They need to act in support of Australia's security and also basic human rights in Palestine and also Israel's security. So Thank I'd encourage you to go to ivotepalestine.org.au and get involved. It would be wonderful to have your support. We've been having the support of so many people across Australia, you know, like as I mentioned, over candidates and over 90% of, of electorates across the country have received emails through our campaign. We've had over 50, 50 candidates sign the pledge, which is wonderful. And, um, yeah, and it's just going to be getting stronger and stronger as we build up for the election coming up on the 2nd of July. Okay, let's finish up on that because we are badly over time. Thank you so much, Paul. That was very informative and refreshing. And we'll talk again in the future as things, um, you know, roll on and, and develop further. Thanks, Paul. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Bye. Kevin Healy is online. Morning, Kevin. Uh, morning, Lali. And um, I was just thinking, sitting here thinking, because I, I wrote this um, and recorded it yesterday, so gremlins have got into the system somehow, <laughs> yes. but I, I, that was before the result in Britain, obviously. Yes. So I, I sat here and thought, will I add something this morning? And then, yes, of course, <laughs> sloth and procrastination set in, so I've just left it as it was. But... Um, the only, I, I just, it is worth mentioning though, I think, because I, I, you know, if, if it affects capitalism, it doesn't worry me one inch. Yeah, it's, it's a complex issue, but I let you go. Yeah, but it's, well, I, I just think that, you know, that what worries me is there's a, there's a very strong element that the vote was based on, on anti-immigration. Right. That's right. 
It's, it's and that, I think we need more time to analyse, but that's I think right. that's that's a real worry. That's all. Yeah. Off you go. Okay, a weak solidarity, Bricky team, and it's a team of one, actually, isn't it? Uh, listener, when after weeks, seemingly endless weeks, we're but one week away from elect shit, uh, and won't, hang on, elect shit, that doesn't sound right. Sorry, elect And won't the country breathe a sigh of relief, bringing us to one who wishes she was running, but sadly was prevented from continuing her long, long-term commitment to serving the people, her long-term altruism, Yes, seemingly endless contributor to parliamentary democracy and big, big helicopter fan, Bronny Bash Up the Workers, direct quote. I've met Donald Trample the poor, and he seemed like a perfectly reasonable type of person. Well, good news for Bronny, because we can assure her Donald would reciprocally see our Bronny as a perfectly reasonable type of person thwarted by her own party from continuing to serve us and won't she be missed but maybe just maybe a contribution to service with the perfectly reasonable donald trample the poor awaits she may join donald in opposing gun control as the as the national rifle association has endorsed him for his defense of human rights and following the orlando massacre leading to more long-haired commie greeny wooden working and iron lots calling yet again for gun control the nra attacked calls for potential terrorists to be denied access to kill 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 firearms including military automatic big time kill firearms because they have every right under the second amendment to those firearms and kill, kill, kill firearms, don't kill anyone. Well, more correctly, don't kill anyone unless someone holding them lets fly. And so it is people who kill, who kill and if they were denied kill, kill, kill firearms, doubtless they'd invade nightclubs and churches and mosques and schools and public places and strangle everyone there one by one. Victims would line up to be killed because they, the stranglers, have every right to kill them because I'm sure there must be the something or other amendment which gives them that God-given right. So banning kill, kill, kill guns would be a waste of time and an attack on human rights and God and civil liberties, even if the end result is a touch uncivil and perfectly reasonable Donald knows that. Now, we all know that beyond the serious approach of the week that was, occasionally we make the odd attempt at very bad humour, which looks even worse when compared to great comedians falling about with their audience at split your sides, piss your pants, true comedy. Great comedians like any McGuire women upset, James Bray, sure I'm not sexist, Wayne caressed breasts and Danny Pauly. Well, Wayne's proud record of supporting women and feminism is legend. He's certainly got a record, literally, sexual assault, a proud history of domestic violence. And, well, as for Eddie McGuire, women upset, not all women were upset. Great political mind Pauline Hoonson declared it was just a joke. Get a life. Move on. Where's your sense of humour? Next thing you'll object to a few tasteful split your sides. No racism intended jokes about slant eyes and bulls and Muslims, terrorists and illegal boat people. 
And Eddie has a long history of not being sexist and not being racist and not being tasteless. So long we know that when he says something sexist, he is most definitely not being sexist. When he says something racist, he is most definitely not being racist. When he cracks a brilliant line about violence against women, he is most definitely not condoning violence against women. Just make a very funny joke about drowning a woman if you don't like what she writes about you, but for goodness sake, it was just a joke. Everyone knows I'm not sexist. Everyone knows I'm not racist. Some of my best friends are women. Some of my best friends are monkey, uh, sorry, Aboriginal people. Yeah, just a few boys, a few guys having a bit of fun. Although next time they should invite Pauline into the studio and really ramp up the comedy. Speaking of jokes, let's end the tension. What we've been waiting for, yes, with 11 more long days of this election fever to go before El Exit. It's slowly coming down. Once again, our very special week that was election coverage. And speaking of jokes, which joker had the mischievous wit, the wicked wit, to sit our former great and beloved Prime Minister, Nuclear Hawk himself, next to his nemesis, the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, ex-Big Supremo Paul, at the Socialist Party launch and ensure little Billy had to embrace former Big Supremo Julia Gorlinghard next to them, whose welcoming smile was about as sincere as a politician's promise. Pity little Kevin Rod for the workers couldn't make it from Moscow where he is lobbying for the big UN of the US of the UN of the world job as he could have sat next to Julia and too would have embraced little Billy with the same sincerity given little Billy managed to knife them both. And doubtless they would have enthusiastically beefed out solidarity forever. But it's very confusing. Uh, well, to me, I won't assume for you, listener, but 13 days before the big day, the socialists launched their campaign. Well, what were the previous six and a half weeks all about? And the caring business class party won't start campaigning until tomorrow, one week or even six days of campaigning. How confident must they feel when they could have been campaigning for seven weeks? Maybe they'll mention the smash the evil union's jackboots con mission, the great urgent national issue which forced poor big supremo Malcolm Tunnerville to call the election. The most pressing issue in the country, the cruel impediment to jobs and growth and innovation. Yet as we've mentioned before, sunk without trace. After socialist petty wrong the workers mused a marriage equality same-sex marriage plebiscite would incite hatred and vitriol and bigotry, economic guru and former minister for concentration camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boat Scuttle Them More Lash Sun said he understood her concern cause, quote, I know it from personal experience, having been exposed to that sort of hatred and bigotry for the views I've taken. Well, don't we feel for poor Scuttle them? Don't our hearts bleed? Except small difference Scuttle them. Those who simply want the right to marry the person they love haven't deserved that sort of hatred and bigotry. Wonder if the victims, sorry, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people he has locked up in the concentration camps behind the razor wire, have suffered anywhere near as much as poor Scuttle them. Let's hope he doesn't resort to immersing himself in petrol and do something desperate. 
The truth there was he dear baby Jesus lobby supported the supported scuttle them and said any move not to hold a plebiscite would be a broken election promise. And while one lot cry out for marriage equality, the Christians are crying out for hatred and vitriol and bigotry to be legalized for the plebiscites. The community must respect our God-given right to explain bestiality and unnatural attacks on dear baby Jesus' marriage between a man and a woman. Perhaps they could recruit Eddie and James and Wayne and Danny to support their views on the role of women in the dear baby Jesus world, because somehow cold as ice comes to mind. And on those fleeing our invasions, for which we locked them, up, locked them up in the concentration camps, on this ABC telly show that vainly attempts to portray politicians as, wait for it, real human beings, Malcolm asserted, I don't have a heart of stone. Lesser of two evils, apparently. So, listener, if you've got a chisel, hammer, mallet, pneumatic drill, that sort of thing to spare, could you drop it or them into 3CR by next week? Because we want to practice our surgical skills to put Malcolm's assertion to the test. Nurse, a chisel. No, uh, uh, nurse, mallet. No, no, no good. Nurse, okay, pneumatic drill. On surgery, what a beat-up this scare campaign by the socialists that Malcolm wants to privatise Medicare, support private medicine, support private health insurance. Oh no, of course, private health insurance is not privatisation, it's just, well, good business practice, sensible use of public health funds, and that's already happening. So what's little Billy talking about? And maybe Malcolm knows he doesn't have to privatise what's been privatised. And OK, the original free health system, Medibank, brought in by the Whitlam government, was privatised, but that was a different Malcolm. And obviously after Qantas and the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank and any other public service that turned over a neat little profit, the socialists have learned that privatisation may not be the best thing for those other than the those who now capture the neat little profit. As a silly naive by the by, if the hypothecated levy to provide free health care is not enough, why not just increase the levy? Oh, silly me. That was the week that was special election report. Hope it's helped yet again. Finally and seriously, I join the many people expressing our sadness and tributes to Comrade Lynn Beaton, a sometime presenter of this program, and I recall attending a launch of a new magazine called Reds many years ago by Lynn and another late presenter of this program, Bill Della, launched appropriately at a pub, and although it was like so many left publications short-lived, it contained excellent material, and I raise that because Lynn Beaton was both a dedicated social activist, her vast range of activities are being talked about on a number of programs. I did want to mention in recent years her campaign to save ancient rock art on the Barra Peninsula in WA from the greed of the resource industry, a social activist and an intellectual. But as importantly, she was a warm humanist and a wonderful mother. That warmth and her contributions to the cause will, to coin a cliché, be sadly missed. Farley, comrade, good morning. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, listeners, we are on the roll. We have had so many. This is the first 100% live program I'm doing, and I'm talking to a group of people here who are from the West Papua movement <clears throat> in Australia. We've got Louis, 
we got Louise, mm-hmm. and we got Adolf. So that's an amazing team of people. And we did talk to um, two of uh, Adolf and, and Louis last time, uh, but we have found there's a bit of an update that we've got to go through. And our new guest, Louise, has quite a credential behind her. Uh, she's embarrassed here, but... <laughs> Um, she, she has been a, a lifelong activist in, in the West Papua area, and um, she has worked tirelessly for, for the, for the uh, independence of West Papua, and she's the founder of the Australian West Papua Association, so I let her speak for herself, although she's a little bit embarrassed about it all. But let's start with an update, Louis. Louis, so you, you were going to give us a quick update, because the things have changed a bit. Yes, thank you, Lolita, and also good morning, uh, listeners. Uh, I'm just going to give you a brief uh, rundown on update about uh, what's actually happening in West Papua. Um, during this week um, at the UN uh, session at, uh, at uh, Geneva, we actually were so happy to have about, uh, there was quite a lot of presentation on, on Papua and basically what's happening in Papua in terms of human rights abuse and all that. So. Um, yeah, that was that was that was very good, um, and I can really I I was just uh, watching one of the video which which was actually showed show show us the the response from Indonesian government wasn't um, they were really admitting uh, what was actually happening with Papua they kept on denying it, and you know. You know, after after what happened in, in, in Papua, you know, and you know, there was a news and you know, photos and everything being put on the media and everything. There is no point going to UN and denying it, you know, you might as well just admit it mm-hmm. and at least find some ways to actually um, resolve the problem. And also um recently also uh, in in, 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 uh, in Papua, um Indonesian government has actually uh, establish its own uh, fact-finding team on um, on human rights abuse. Um, what what's what actually people in Papua they actually, they want their own this fact-finding to actually involve them as well. But what you um, you know I mean Indonesia did was they they exclude them. They they did their own you know this they did their own by involving some head of uh, missions from five countries, which includes Papua New Guinea and I don't know the other four. And so, you know, that's not really an independent one, which because, you know, a lot of, there will be a lot of misinformation about what's actually happening in Papua. Hmm. So there was a really, really about a week ago, demanding that the, the, the fact not finding team should involve the Papuans as well. Absolutely. And the uh, United Liberation Movement for West Papua, which includes the major political factions in Papua. And the uh, human rights uh, institution in Papua as well, they have hmm. to get involved and actually, you know, they, it will give us the proper picture of what's actually been happening in Papua. And, yeah, and recently also we were having a lot of um, um, killings. Yes. It's still happening. Um, people been, um, there's a lot of hit and run accidents where Papuans have been, um, like, they've been run into by a vehicle, and we are getting a lot of reports lately, it's happening throughout Papua, and this, um, I, as one of the uh, Papuans living here, I've been sending a lot of emails and updating Papuans about to be aware of this situation, because we're living in a time where it's so dangerous, and this thing will, will happen, you know, 
just just similar to what happened in East Timor, leading up to that air time during that period, you know, you have this lot of mysterious deaths happening. So yeah, that's basically a little bit of update on uh, what's happening in Papua. Mm. And Adolf, you were going to talk about the Malaysian Spearhead Group. Um, yes, we 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 are going to the um, um, UN General Assembly in September, um, mm. and also the African Caribbean Pacific is putting up the um, motion to release up the. Um, UN Decolonization Committee. Yep. And so we want the Australia um, government represent to um, vote for the motion, and we actually really begging for the um, Australia government to stand up and speak. Support you support. guys. And have you had heard anything from them at all? Um. Yes, Lucy. Well, we're sort of waiting for a to reply. see who gets in, oh. right? And uh, and then we we would we've got a campaign ready for Australian people to just go really hard on the government because the government policy on West Papua is now um, what about forty or fifty or sixty years old mm. policy, yeah. and it's appalling anyway. And so it's like East Timor; they sort of have to change in the interests of good neighbourly relations and and peace in the region. So we will be asking Australians immediately after the referendum, get in and... Not a referendum. And, oh, oh. Uh, immediately after the vote. Elections. Vote here, <laughs> elections. elections. <laughs> You're getting confused with Brexit. Sorry. <laughs> it's all-consuming, isn't it? There's so much going on around Yes, the I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a <clears> big <throat> thing. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Yes, yes. Um. Have you finished your point, have you? Yes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I'll just I'll just yes. add a little bit of what Adolf has actually said because um, with the African Caribbean uh, Pacific um, leaders um, gonna be putting up a motion at UN, and it's so important that um, um, Australian uh, representatives support it because uh, you know um, this is this is this is. This is something, it's, it's about human rights, it's about human beings, it's the lives of people that we really need to protect it, you yes. know. If you want to have a good neighbor in the Pacific, you know, we, we, and also security, I think this issue about Papua really needs to be settled because, you know, we can go out in the world and talk about, you know, peace and stability around the world, but this is happening right next door to us. We're not even talking about it, so I think... Um, Australian uh, public needs to rally behind the government and really talk about this issue and make sure that they really pressure the government to, you know, when this when this uh, UN session comes on, the, the, the representative must actually um, support this issue. So yeah, it's it's so important to the people of West Papua, and we are, we are actually begging the Australian. Um, the grassroots especially to, you know, lobby your representative wherever they are and make sure that is this, this issue becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, a priority in, uh, in, in your campaign as well, yeah. Well, to get, to get the motion passed, out of 196 members, 
So we need 160 votes. That's that, a lot. Is that the figure? 160? Yeah, 160 votes. 160 yeah. votes. 130. So um, yeah, there's 89 members in the ACP. That's mm. why the ACP is... is now, what's the ACP? African, Caribbean, Pacific. Okay. And the chairman of that, the chairman of the secretariat, is Vanuatu. Okay. And so a lot of the Pacific nations that we've been working with for the last 10 years are in the African, Caribbean, Pacific. So we're not sort of starting completely from cold. But we still do need uh, 130 votes and to get the two-thirds majority win. And Indonesia is splashing money around left, right and centre. Of course. They've actually signed Lombok-type treaties. The Lombok Treaty is what it signed with Australia, um, where it's illegal to support West Papua's independence. So they've signed um, treaties with, I think, 182 um, members, member countries. So we've got to, if the Australian people are going to get this up, um, we've got to work really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what's, what's the latest in the process of getting the, the independence motion listed? It has gone and it will be considered in September, is that correct? Yes, during the General Assembly um, session from September till December in New York. And what, what, what's the, the, the landscape looking like, you know, in terms of support from the countries, from the ACP? They are the mm. ones who are voting on it. Mm. So at the moment, how many votes do you think West Papua has been able to secure? Well, it's very tricky and quite dangerous <laughs> to, to sort of predict things. Um, but the idea came from the Solomon Island government was going to, to uh, put up the motion but then the actual, actually the African Caribbean Pacific Heads of State Group meeting, which was in Port Moresby a couple of weeks ago, they, they actually they are people who said, look, we'll do it because we've got 89 members. Mm. Okay? Mm. So at least there's a, we've got a chance if we can get those 89 members. But around the outside, of course, um, Indonesia is paying off the smaller countries already. They're also going to run, yeah. yeah. And is Australia supporting that move by Indonesia or is it all hush-hush? Removed move by Indonesia yes. to pay off to, countries. To pay off countries, yes. It's, it's, it's Australia-related <laughs> or not. We don't talk about it. <laughs> what do you think? I, I don't know if I'm going to go on radio and say that. <laughs> <laughs> Australia so is, is helping people Indonesia. people make up their mind, yes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. They can do yes. that. Okay. I think Australia's position is so entrenched. Um, it's come, you know, from the 1960s. That's when... Yes, so as you said, it's 40 years old or something. Uh, yeah, Sir Garfield Barwick. If anyone knows Sir Garfield Barwick's descendants, we need to talk to them about that okay. change. He forced the change in 1961. <coughs> mm. And we know what happened in East Timor. And, yes. Um, oh, and a few other incidents I... Uh, in Bali too and, and it's, it's just all a bit uh, beyond my ability to, to, to deal with I think it's so much destruction and especially you know given that we are black fellows it's always mm. we on the sidelines aren't we mm. yeah yes fight back but um, well if look, people really want to know more we've got we have these open days we've got this amazing office yes. down in Docklands yes um, and it's actually supported by a number of 3CR listeners through the West Papua Rent Collective yep okay they pay the rent so it's a a, can you believe our independent struggle is being run out of a five-star energy building? Oh, my goodness. How did you manage that? I know. <laughs> Normally. It's, it's amazing, yeah. I've always <laughs> lived in tenement slums on activism and all this sort of stuff.
stuff, but we're going down there and we've got this five-star energy place. Posh, very posh. Totally posh, <laughs> totally posh. Um, and so every three or four months we have an open day uh, for the rent collective people to come. They're all sort of the really hardcore, clear-thinking political left in Australia is mostly what the rent collective people are. They pay $30 a month to to pay for our rent. Um, and so we have these open days basically to keep them up to, on, on the politics and where is it going and to launch new initiatives and uh, we launch books and we do all sorts of things and it's a really great Sunday afternoon and, of course, we have an amazing lunch. This time um, our office is actually called the Department of Foreign Affairs, Immigration and Trade. Yes, we need to talk a bit more about that. Okay. Yeah. So, um, finish doing this, this open day announcement, then we'll go to that. Okay, <coughs> all right, yes. So, well, uh, I think I'll do this first because it'll lead into it okay, a bit fine, better. Fine, fine. Um, Whatever. This way. is not a government in exile. The Federal Republic of West Papua was opened in, uh, declared in, in ni- uh, 2011. Yep. Yeah. So, this is just a government department um, of that organisation that's up there. Um, and we've had visitors going up there recently, you know, like Australians, and they come back and they just say the level of organisation is amazing. Mm. It's all underground, and there's just a few people above the ground wow. whose names are known. So, um, so <laughs> down here we've just got, um, because Jacob Rumbiak is the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Immigration and Trade, uh, our office is that. So what we're doing... Um Just a quick word about yeah. Jacob Ruby, actually. I, I've got a, a bit of notes here that I might say while you're coughing. Yep. So he, <coughs> ten years he was in the Indonesian prison and tortured mm. for raising the morning star flag. Mm. And um, he got to Australia by East Timor. Uh, it was a, it, somebody says here, it's, it's like an epic movie, his journey and his yes. story. Mm. Mm. Uh, maybe we should get him in here one day to tell, tell us the story. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> right, yes, <coughs> yes. Keep going, sorry. There has to been a, a movie <coughs> made, yeah. It's called Strange Birds in Paradise, and they used his life. It's been on ABC a few times. Okay. Um, they used his life as a sort of coat hanger to tell West Papua's story. Hmm. And during the really difficult parts, um, like when he was in jail being tortured and all that sort of stuff, They've animated him yep. so sometimes. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's heartbreaking when you watch that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, mm. this is a really uplifting one, oh, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, where were we up to? Totally forgotten. We're talking about the Federal the Republic of West Papua? No, the Foreign Affairs Department. Yes, the down here in Docklands. Yes. So that's, um, and I'll just help anyone who's sort of very politically inclined, please, we are not a government in exile. We are just a department down there, and the government is in West Papua. It makes a big difference to yes, the politics. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I'll be clear on that. Yes. So what we're doing is on um, August the 14th, we're launching the trade office part of it. When we opened the um, office in uh, June 2014, obviously that was the f- sort of the foreign affairs, the emphasis was on foreign affairs. When the Freedom Flotilla went to West Papua, we opened um, the immigration office so that uh, all the f- activists would have our stamp, our visa stamp, inside the Aboriginal passports. So that was done in Trades Hall. So and then the mon- that, that flotilla was, uh, what, 120% supported by 3CR too. We had yeah. a huge totally. involvement. In it. Totally. Yes, yeah. it was yes that's yeah. right. It was a very big thing and very successful. Yes. And um, uh, it costs the Australian taxpayers so much money. You know, um, my cousin in Canberra is an academic, and he said, how much did that bloody flotilla cost? And I said, oh, well, I was thinking how much, you know, it costs $3,000 on eBay, whatever, to get the votes. And he said, no, the taxpayers. 
Um, the Australian government sent up uh, ten commando boats oh, with men, and we've got pictures of them landing on um, what's that island? Uh, little, the little island off mm. the coast of West, off the coast of New Guinea. We had one of our people, these guys know, was sitting in a coconut tree for three days with a camera, mm. waiting to get these pictures. So they're up on the website. Yeah. The Americans had a submarine. My goodness. Totally. Yeah. And the uh, Indonesians had four warships they sent to um, Marauki. Mm. Mm. So um, that was the, the immigration office's first job. Now we're doing the trade yeah. office because it's very important. We don't want it to be like East Timor. As soon as it's independent, yes. the Chinese supermarkets came down. It was all... Um, the only people who could afford it were the UN bureaucrats. Of course. Yeah. So we're setting up a trade uh, deal with a secret person, which will be revealed when you come down here. It's yeah, amazing. Based on the principles of self-governance, self-determination, and good governance. Sounds good. Yes. yes. Okay. So 14th of, 14th of August, there's some uh, <coughs> down at um, 838 Docklands. Okay. Any final words before we... Close the discussion. Adolf, anything you want to say? Are you guys um, featuring the elections at all? Is it oh, a long question to ask? Yes, <laughs> um, I, I got an email from an intended senator for Melbourne. Um, he's actually invited me to meet up with him for, for a speech, hopefully. Um, that's going to be Monday next week, so hopefully I can yeah, actually have one of the uh, Policy was a little bit about West Papua as well, so hopefully when, I can. When, uh, I think it's the next week Monday. I've actually replied the email, but uh, we haven't we actually confirmed the time yet. So and venue? Yeah, um, he hasn't actually told me where the venue <laughs> is, but I'm just letting you know what's Sounds happening. A bit clock and yeah, <laughs> but is it Greens or Labor? Uh, or uh, it's from the um, Australian. Uh, mm, Sex party? No, it, no, <laughs> I, it just slips out of my mind. An Australian. Um, Destiny or something. Destiny. That's okay. We'll update yeah. it when you tell us. <laughs> well, it's also okay, thank you. With the Green Party as well, they've got really good policy in uh, with the Greens to support um, some of the uh, with the West Papuan, and it's really gro- good to look it up as well. From the I Green have to side. say, as a candidate for the Social Alliance, we have a bloody good policy on West support. Yes. <laughs> yes. Social Alliance and the Greens. Yes. The yeah. only ones with policies. Okay, so thank you so much, guys. A big effort for you to come this on the morning to, to, to drag yourself in the cold to come in here. But this has been a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we'll have follow-ups as well. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. <coughs> now I'm just going to go to announcements. Um, there are so many things happening today, it's not funny. So there's a marriage equality uh, rally today at, at the State Library in Swanson Street at 1 p.m., there is um, a Kurdish protest against the Turkish government at 2 to 4 p.m. Um, again at the State Library. So you must all put your tent at the State Library. And there's another one. Where, where did I see that? The 25th. That's right. There's a, a, a big red book fair at the International Bookshop and Trades Hall. And there's a few more too. And again today at 5 p.m., there's a, a solidarity rally organized by the Latin American community in solidarity with Mexico. And Mexico is undergoing enormous protests, like France, against the neoliberal reforms. And there's massive protests on the streets and hundreds of people on the streets, thousands on the streets. So keep 
just go to State Library and State Port for the whole day, and you'll find the rallies that will come to you. It's extremely busy day today. Um, you can forget about the elections for now because everybody's too busy rallying. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, thank you, listeners, and. It's been a 100% live program today, and I've been just running a puff. <laughs> Apologies for any uh, glitches that may have taken place. And, again, may I encourage you to donate to 3CR. We are, you know, looking forward to people to donate to our radiothon. And, as you know, we run a, uh, the smell of oily rag, basically, and we can do with all the donations we can get. We are run by volunteers, and your donations are tax-deductible. I'm just going to go out with a tune before we have Asia-Pacific Currents coming. And before I do that, I want to thank um, Paul Duffel from uh, the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network and also thank uh, Fiona and Jeremy from the Friends of um, Public Housing and, of course, our West Papua team. Thank you so much, guys. And... Goodbye till two weeks. Thank you.